Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, political analyst, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. RT reports Putin tells UN chief Kosovo set Donbass precedent. Russia's president and the UN boss met in Moscow to discuss the Ukraine crisis. Russian President Putin hosted UN Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez in the Kremlin yesterday for talks. What do we make of this? Well, let's turn to our first guest. He's a Moscow-based international relations and security analyst, Mark Schloboda. As always, Mark, welcome back. Dr. Leon Garland, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on the Critical Hour. So RT reports that Moscow's move to recognize the breakaway republics of Donetsk and Lugansk were was based on the Kosovo precedent set up by a UN-backed court, Putin told Gutierrez. The republics emerged after people living in Ukraine's east rejected the Western-backed 2014 Maidan, he explained. Putin added that the post-coup Kiev government opted for a military solution that led to the eight-year standoff in the Donbass. Mark, two things. One, quickly explain, if you could, President Kosovo precedent, and is this a valid argument? And also, it sounds like Putin took Gutierrez to task. Yeah, okay, so uh, Antonio Gutierrez, the UN Secretary General, obviously a, a European uh, from Portugal, uh, he came, uh, he has been making increasingly, uh, shall we say, unobjective comments uh, about the crisis uh, in uh, the, con- the crisis and the Russian intervention in uh, Ukraine uh, over uh, the last couple of months. Um, and he came basically to complain. Uh, to complain about Russia recognizing the independence of Donetsk and Lugansk uh, and about the Russian uh, intervention uh, to secure their territory and, and um, you know, prevent the Kiev regime's military from presenting a threat to the Donbass again. Uh, and when he did so, uh, the Russian president replied that according to precedent set by the West and accepted by at least half the world's countries in a U.N. court, that Russia's decision to recognize Donetsk and Lugansk, considering the circumstances of the overthrow of the government uh, in Kiev in 2014 with open Western support and no small amount of Newland orchestration, um, uh, makes and and the ensuing uh, conflict uh, with the uh, Kiev regime military forces attempting to uh, subjugate uh, the Donbass to their seizure of power in Kiev by force, the resulting atrocities, 15,000 deaths, more than fits uh, the precedent that was established with Kosovo, whereby the West bombed uh, Serbia uh, invaded and carved up the territory, turning uh, Kosovo into an effective NATO protectorate with the largest U.S. military base in Europe estab- being es- then established there, Camp Bonsteel. Um, and uh, a U.N. court backed this up, saying that uh, the uh, people in question do not necessarily have to request uh, permission from the or acquire permission from the uh, central authorities uh, in the country in order to declare their independence. 
Um, and the fact that uh, so many uh, countries aligned with the West have recognized Kosovo um, makes the UN Secretary General's complaints uh, with regard to the Donbass rather hypocritical. And President Putin uh, kindly and thoughtfully went through this uh, argument uh, and then, uh, you know, told him to go pound sand. And I consider that to be honest, Mark, a pushback uh, a, 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 against the so-called rules back order. It's it, because to me, what President Putin's saying is this. Normally, you will argue that only you can do things, that only the West can do these things, and that they're not precedents because the West has a right to do whatever they want and whoever is independent states don't. So I consider that a another way of saying there's a new world order. But here's the big story I want to hear, for, for, hear, hear about. I understand that Gazprom and the Russians have determined that they're no longer that, that excuse me no longer that they're not willing to donate free gas to Poland and Bulgaria that Poland and Bulgaria will actually be a, required to pay for their gas rather than get the, get it free and that seems to for I don't know why it seems to have upset them Mark what are your thoughts on that yeah, um, I mean, this first of all this comes as the, the European Union is. Uh, arguing and debating itself and making constant pronouncements that they're going to cut off. They're going to stop their own import of Russian oil and gas, and they're going to survive, you know, fuel their economies, I guess, on um, uh, magical fusion wood. power. Wood, or, or, they're <laughs> Yeah. Um, so, yeah, wood. They're going to gather Possibly. firewood like um, we used to do back in, yeah, you know, when we were out in the out in the, you know, hunter gatherers. I, I don't know. They're close to Saudi Arabia. Maybe they'll maybe they'll if they, Saudi Arabia doesn't have any extra oil, maybe they'll they'll burn camel dung. What uh, Russia has said, look, you have unilaterally declared economic war on us uh, via your sanctions. You have made your own currencies. Uh, dollars and euros useless to us because you've seized $300 billion worth of them, stolen, said that you're never going to return it. Um, and, uh, um, uh, you know, the, anything that you may pay us in dollars and, and euros, you'll just seize again. We can't spend it. it. Your own currency you have made worthless to us. So you have to pay us in something that has value, the ruble. Because we can spend the ruble. The Russian government can spend the ruble. Uh, and that will help support uh, the ruble uh, because of your unilateral, you know, under assault from your unilateral uh, war sanctions. And it's been working because the ruble is now worth more than it was at, at the start of the Russian intervention and the, the resulting war of economic sanctions. And there are a few EU countries that have already agreed, uh, like uh, Hungary, Slovakia seems well on the way, Armenia is already paying, the Vatican uh, has agreed to pay, uh, and, and some that are hemming and hawing, like Germany. And then there's others that have outright refused, Bulgaria and Poland. Um, and Russia, uh, you know, has responded to that. Uh, the, well, the Russian uh, gas company Gazprom, uh, state affiliated, uh, has cut off all gas to them, saying, you know, no money in a currency that we can spend, uh, then then no gas for you. Um, and now they're, you know, while before they were openly talking about, you know, all making promises to each other about how much they're going to survive without Russian gas and oil. Now, suddenly they're screaming about having Russian gas stopped. Um, and they're saying that this, you know, the demands uh, that it come in the form of rubles is a violation of contract. 
And Russia, you know, is clearly responding. Look, you declared an economic war, existential economic war on us via sanctions. You have made your own currencies worthless to us. Your contracts no longer apply. And these are the new rules of the game. And uh, you started this, but we're going to finish it. And uh, that's where they're at right now. And uh, it is the summer months. And so they're they're better equipped to handle it than they might be a half a year earlier or later. Uh, but obviously, um, this is still going to have enormous immediate impact and much greater impact within a few months. Pouring oil on the fire, I think this is RT, Lavrov warns flow of Western arms into Ukraine risks nuclear war. Under no circumstances should a third world war be allowed to happen, according to uh, Sergei Lavrov. Um, he says this is like pouring oil on the fire in Ukraine and heightening the chances of a full-blown nuclear conflict by continuing to dump advanced weaponry into the war zone. And it's interesting, Mark, I don't know if, if you have uh, heard or read the way that this is being spun in the United States. Here, uh, Lavrov's statements are being described as um, inflammatory. They're being described as uh, as aggressive and uh, <clears throat> and um, militaristic, whereas to me, two things: one, he's merely stating the obvious that if outside entities continue to fan these flames, that it could escalate well beyond the control of any of the parties involved. And to me, there's also a, a very subtle or not so subtle subtext here in that what is really kind of ruffling the feathers of a lot of folks here is that this is Lavrov saying, we aren't backing down. You aren't scaring us. We are in this till the end. And that to me is something that I don't know that anybody here in the West was really prepared for or really wants to hear coming from the uh, foreign secretary, Sergei Lavrov. D does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, we've seen uh, a constant escalation at this point. First, it was uh, propping up through financial support the regime in Kiev, then small arms and ammunition. Uh, then that advanced to uh, advanced uh, anti-tank uh, and anti-aircraft weapons. Uh, then, uh, you know, just within the last few days, it was uh, uh, self-propelled artillery, heavy artillery pieces, uh, and now tanks. And uh, already we're bringing up uh, fighter aircraft again, at least Boris Johnson is. Um, and, um, you know, the attempts by the West to saying, you know, we're not involved in this conflict. It has nothing to do with it. Well, obviously, the Kremlin doesn't take that seriously. And he doesn't have to because even the recently retired U.S. general and, and recently uh, uh, the former uh, Supreme Allied Commander of Force of NATO forces in Europe, General Philip Breedlove, said openly, "We are in a proxy war with Russia in Ukraine. Right? That, we are in a proxy war. Uh, you know, a direct proxy war. And 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 you know, he he doesn't see anything wrong with it. And obviously, the Western press hasn't uh, responded to that because the, the the West is now in an open proxy war with uh, you know a nuclear armed uh, state like Russia. And the the fact that this could escalate further, right, uh, as Russia attempts to um, um, stop. 
Western armed shipments into Ukraine that are killing its soldiers. Uh, obviously, uh, you know, uh, the potential for escalation into from the proxy war to a direct war is is a a matter of one small accident away at this point. And then we're in a conventional shooting war between the West and and Russia. And that's only one small step away, of course, uh, from a nuclear war. And Russia is saying, we are willing to bet that the fate of Ukraine, and in particular, the lives of Eastern Ukrainians who have been under uh, bombing for the last eight years by your putsch regime in Kiev, matters more to us then your putsch regime in Kiev and all of its uh, neo-Nazi uh, Azov and right sector and C-14 uh, death squads mean to you. And I'm willing to bet that Russia's right in that regard. Well, the other part of it, Mark, and here's the reality from the beginning. Either they're delusional or a big part of this is just making money because it's not going to change the outcome because the balance of power on Russia's border is overwhelming to Russia. So all, for all of these things they're doing, it'll be an aggravation to Russia. It'll be a, 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 an issue of dealing with the fact that they're sending this stuff in. But because of Russia's um, determination and overwhelming military power— the question is, what are the Western leaders going to do when they wake up one day and it's like, yeah, well, looks like the Russians are achieving their goals as they surely will. Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think it's or. I, I think it's both. Uh, it's denialism. It is money. And it is, you know, a, a rather hegemonic view of geopolitics. These things aren't mutually exclusive and they reinforce each other. And Russia does have enormous conventional advantage. The, the best military, U.S. military analysts, not the rhetorical ones, will tell you that uh, Russia has used only a fraction of its military power thus far in Ukraine and refrained some of some of its, you know, heaviest, particularly its uh, air units and so on, is and part of that is because they are reserving it in case of an escalation to direct military conventional conflict with NATO. And yes, I mean, the United States uh, in grand total in the world has greater military power. No question. They spent times more. But uh, basically, the EU countries of NATO have not gotten bang for their buck with what they've spent. And the U.S. has spent the last two decades trying to shift military assets to Asia uh, to, to try to separate Taiwan from China. Uh, so they don't have it uh, in Europe. They are not geared. They are not prepared. They are not equipped for a conventional war with Russia uh, in, uh, you know, Eastern Europe, and Russia is. And uh, they are very slow to willing to acknowledge or realize that fact. Mark Sloboda, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thanks for having me. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned.
We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. People's Dispatch reports U.S. and Pacific allies panic over Solomon Islands' China security deal. The security cooperation deal signed between the two governments came in the backdrop of anti-Chinese violence and riots precipitating in a political crisis on the island nation in November last year. What are we to make of all of this? Well, for insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's a peace activist, writer, and teacher, K.J. No. As always, K.J., welcome back. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. So the United States and its Pacific allies have sounded alarm bells over a security cooperation deal signed between Solomon Islands and China with threats directed at China. Uh, This past Sunday, the Chinese embassy in Solomon Islands hit back at the comments made by the U.S. delegation that visited the Pacific Island nation last week, calling it a blatant threat. KJ, before we come to you, I want to read a paragraph from a responsible statecraft article, The Misbegotten Notion That the South Pacific is a U.S. Sphere of Influence. The speed at which Washington officials rushed to the Solomon Islands after news of a Chinese security pact is all you need to know. The United States routinely rails against the idea of spheres of influence when other states claim them. But in its rivalry with China, the U.S. assumes that Pacific Island nations belong firmly in the American sphere of influence. U.S. entreaties are likely to, uh, too late to change minds in the Solomon Island government, and they show that the U.S. doesn't really believe that small states get to make their own decisions when it comes to foreign policy. And I'll just add quickly, AJ, uh, K, I'm sorry, KJ, uh, in response to the uh, United States uh, Democracy Summit and all of this bluster around Ukraine and supporting democracy, even though the United States overthrew the the democratically elected government in Ukraine in 2014. KJ, no. Yes, absolutely. Um, The U.S. does not believe that small states, or for that matter, any state, uh, has its own sovereignty, that it gets to make up its own mind about its foreign affairs or foreign relations. Uh, The U.S. has always believed that the Pacific is an American lake, uh, and it uh, objects to spheres of influence by other countries, but it really sees the entire globe as its uh, speed of influence. So the point to make is that the speed at which Washington responded is both incredibly fast, but also incredibly slow because the U.S. has not even had an embassy on Solomon Islands for 29 years. And all of a sudden it does an about threat. When it talks about a blatant threat, when it makes blatant threats to the Solomon Islands because it considers any kind of Chinese presence there or some kind of security agreement, which Solomon Islands makes very clear is not a base. But the mere fact that the Solomon Islands will allow any kind of, have any kind of relationship that it will allow Chinese uh, ships to do some kind of, you know, logistical, uh, you know, uh, work there. I mean, we have to put this into context. Uh, You know, um, Japan has 120 bases, uh, you know, within very short distance to uh, China. Uh, South Korea has 73 bases with, uh, in close proximity to China. Uh, the island of Jeju, belonging to South Korea, 
is within, uh, I think, less than 300 nautical miles uh, of Shanghai. And as for the Solomon Islands, you know, Solomon Islands is 2,000 kilometers away from Australia. Uh, and still, the mere thought of a Chinese ship docking in the Solomon Islands is supposed to constitute some kind of threat. The sheer absurdity, the sheer lack of, of proportion, uh, the sheer exaggeration, the threat inflation is just, uh, you know, beyond the pace. I think this is another example of how when Sergei Lavrov talked about the war in Ukraine being an, an act to oppose the United States, you know, unipolarity. Right. That this is an example. And here's why. Because it exposes the contradictions and hypocrisy of a unipolar world. The U.S. says Ukraine is less than one millimeter from Russia and Russia has no sphere of influence. The Solomon Islands are like six or seven thousand miles from the United States. And the United States, which has like 200 bases themselves in the area, can then determine that China does not have a right to have a base in their own area area of the world where the U.S. has 200 bases. So I think what Ukraine is doing, anybody that looks at that, that listens to the U.S. make their proclamations of why they oppose the military action in Ukraine says these things contradict each other. They're very hypocritical. And I think one of the, that's what, I, what I'm, my point is, one of the ways that you, that things that Ukraine does is expose the hypocrisy of the U.S. and the unipolar hegemonic uh, attitude. Your thoughts? Absolutely. I mean, it exposes the hypocrisy, but that hypocrisy is so over the top that it's blinding. You know, it's the notion that only countries that U.S. designates as having sovereignty should have sovereignty. And that's only under the conditions and according to how the U.S. sees it, as opposed to, as you point out, you know, the Solomon Islands, you know, which has a long, long history of being exploited uh, by, uh, by the West. It was a British colony. Uh, the Australians used it as a slave colony. They did routinely what's called blackbirding, where they, Shanghai, kidnapped tens of thousands of Solomon Islanders and brought them to work as slaves on sugar plantations. And, and then in World War II, it was used as a proxy battlefield. Uh, and it has been, over its history, it's either been a pig's backside of neglect and underdevelopment, or it's being actively exploited uh, and, uh, you know, abused uh, by, by the West. So under those circumstances, for the Solomon Islands to make a rational, pragmatic decision that it is going to ally with China, because, uh, uh, you know, a few months ago last year, uh, the, there was clearly an attempt to overthrow the government because the Solomon Islands had aligned with China instead of Taiwan, as it's supposed to, as it's, you know, kind of being bribed and, and forced into doing. When it made that transition to open diplomatic relations with China, uh, you know, there was a color revolution and uh, attempt at secession from Malaita, one of the other islands. And uh, Australians came in, they were supposed to, uh, you know, assist with security, but clearly they didn't. Uh, and so then that, uh, you know, made it clear to the Solomon Islands that they needed to have other arrangements, other relations, not that one excludes the other, but that they also needed to think about, you know, 
uh, having a security relationship with China. And this is what has been arranged. And for the West and Australia and the United States to get its knickers in a twist over this, I mean, it's, you know, hypocrisy beyond belief. At the open, I read the security cooperation deal signed comes in the backdrop of anti-Chinese violence and riots. And we can take this all the way back to Donald Trump and and COVID and, you know, the Chinese flu and and all of that anti-China rhetoric. So how much of this is really, I, I use the word valid in quotes, concern, not that it's rational concern, but it is real concern in the minds of those in the administration versus it's just a, a false flag, chicken little, the, the, the sky is falling uh, tantrum that is being used to justify uh, anti-Chinese sentiment and further American aggression. You know, I think it's all of the above. I'd add one more thing. It's a lot of projection. Exactly. So, yeah. uh, on, on the one hand, you know, it's threat inflation, extraordinary threat inflation. As I said, you know, it's 2,000 miles away, uh, 2,000 kilometers away from Australia and even, you know, 6,000 miles away from the United States. But at the same time, you know, for example, when the U.S. builds uh, a base on Jeju Island, 300 uh, nautical miles from Shanghai, they expect the Chinese to uh, ignore it, disregard it completely. Uh, and on the other hand, uh, if China, you know, has some kind of docking agreement, that's supposed to be some kind of imminent mortal threat to Australia and the Pacific and the global order. Well, of course, this is absurd, but we have to understand it both as projection and, as you point out, it's a way of raising the temperature, increasing the hatred against China to incite further anti-China uh, you know, uh, demonization and uh, even possibly riots and regime change as happened uh, in, you know, last year in November. And, and let's be honest, too, it's just simple lies that th- th- these these neocon fascists right now in the Biden administration have no concern for the truth. They will point a gun at your head and say to somebody beside him, you know, I think I'm going to rob this guy and then kill him. And then when you say, hey, you're threatening me, they say, no, I'm not. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm just here to have an ice cream party with you. It is so obvious. They will write books about what they should do after they invade you and tear your country to shreds. They will have articles out. We're surrounded this country, and we think we should tear them to shreds and then say, why, this is just perfectly a defensive uh, move, and I can't understand why anybody would be threatened by us. I think that's the point we are are at. Um, uh, Your thoughts, KJ? Uh, Absolutely. I mean, you know, we've said this before, the neocons don't believe in reality. They're out of touch with reality. They believe that they create their own reality and anything they says goes. And so that's, you know, I mean, it's we're in bizarro land. But uh, on the other hand, uh, they also create uh, they are cursed uh, with, you know, a thief always thinks uh, that somebody is going to steal from them. A murderer always thinks that somebody is going to murder them. And they are uh, trapped inside their own paranoid threat inflation. So they become high on their own supply. <sighs> wow. All I can say is, KJ, no, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. And we look forward to having you back. Thank you. Always a pleasure. 
Folks, you are listening to the Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Well, Dr. Fauci says the U.S. is no longer in full-blown pandemic phase. The United States is finally, quote, out of the full-blown explosive pandemic phase, end quote, that has led to nearly one million deaths from COVID-19 in, in more than two years of suffering and hardship. Uh, Fauci, who is Biden's chief medical advisor, he said this earlier today. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. She's a board-certified pediatrician, public health expert, and obesity medicine specialist with a telemedicine practice at AskDrYola.com. Dr. Yolandra Hancock, as always, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. Quote, we're really in a transitional phase from a a deceleration of the numbers into hopefully a more controlled phase and demnesy, Fauci told the Washington Post. Uh, Dr. Hancock, your sense of this assessment based upon your analysis of the numbers? I think we're on our way to it becoming endemic. I would not say that we are there yet now. The WHO actually just earlier this week said that we as a globe are absolutely still in the middle of a pandemic. Um, And there are certain metrics that we pay attention to when we define, define whether or not we are endemic. There were only a couple that Dr. Fauci mentioned, and usually I agree with him wholeheartedly. This, I think he has to be very cautious in how his words are um, received, especially as we're seeing the Department of Justice appeal the decision to reverse the mask mandate. Because clearly, if the American populace is being told that this is now endemic, then what's the purpose of the DOJ challenging the reversal of the mask mandate? We have to look at the big picture. One is case numbers, which I will tell you is woefully underestimated. Most epidemiologists are are estimating that we are only accounting for about 8% of the actual COVID-19 cases. One, because individuals are likely not testing, given this perception that the Omicron 2.0 variant is only mild. And two, because a lot of testing is being done at home and the CDC did not create a space in which this data could be captured. When you look at current numbers, we're up by 61% compared to two weeks ago. Around two weeks ago, we were averaging a little over 20,000 new cases, which is certainly in the direction of being endemic. We're now at close to 51,000 cases because of how much more infectious the Omicron 2.0 subvariant is, even in comparison to Omicron 1.0. What he looked at was hospitalizations and deaths. The challenge is that hospitalization rates do not increase after a surge until about two to three weeks later. So what I would tell him is to be cautious and look at the data a couple of weeks from now to see where we are, both in terms of hospitalizations and deaths. Deaths take about three to four weeks. And we know even with Omicron 1.0 being in a similar um, severity to Omicron 2.0, that there was a significant increase in the number of people who were hospitalized due to COVID simply because of the numbers and also the number of people who died. So it isn't until three to four weeks out from whatever this peak may be 
that's when we'll be able to truly assess whether or not we are in an endemic space versus a pandemic space. We've made progress. Hospitalization rates are down. Deaths were averaging around uh, 360 people dying per day. But it won't be until we see the impact of this late surge that we can honestly say whether or not we are truly in an endemic space. Dr. Hancock, I think one of the things and that seems positive to me, and that is in following this, they had a huge surge in the UK. They didn't have real high numbers in deaths or, 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 or hospitalizations go up much, but they had a huge surge in cases. And they were expecting about three to four weeks ago, they were expecting a gigantic surge here. And that surge never materialized. And there was a lot of, you know, a lot of things that I read, a lot of arguments that said it was because so many people had Omicron um, that it wasn't, it, you know, the numbers didn't hit what was nearly expected, such as they did in, in the UK, as a matter of fact. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think we have to actually look at the data. In the UK, the number of deaths with Omicron 2.0 was actually higher than their first Omicron wave. Their hospitalization rates were actually higher than their first Omicron 1.0 wave. And so when you look at the current data that was reported out of the UK, Omicron 2.0 actually had a higher level of impact than Omicron 1.0. We have to pay attention to those numbers in terms of anticipating what this is going to look like for the United States three to four weeks from now, especially among communities of color, now that this mask mandate reversal has taken place. Quickly, if you could, just go back to the point about the messaging, because Mm -hmm. reading uh, Fauci's comments just takes me back to one of the major problems that the United States has had dealing with this since the Trump administration, and that is clearly explaining to the American people where we are, because folks are going to tend in situations like this to interpret things in as most favorable a way Mm -hmm. to support their inclinations and their position as possible. So after Fauci saying what he's saying, what he said uh, to me now, all bets are off. Masks all go away. Open everything up. Because nobody's going to want to hear anything after he said that. Exactly. Exactly. And that's why you have to be very, very careful in what you communicate. Because one, when you look across the country, there clearly are hot spots in terms of COVID-19. The District of Columbia increased COVID-19 cases by over 150% in the past two weeks. If you look at the New England states, Vermont, Rhode Island, they are leading the country in terms of COVID-19 cases. Luckily, because of such a strong penetration of vaccines, we're not seeing um, the manifestation of increased hospitalizations and deaths as of yet. And we're also seeing numbers start to uptick in terms of the Midwest. So when someone like Dr. Fauci says, oh, this is an endemic, it sounds like Delta Airlines when they pushed out their explanation and celebration of the reversal of the mask mandate when they clearly misspoke when they said that the COVID-19 virus is no different than any other seasonal viral infection. This isn't like any other seasonal viral infection that we have ever seen before. And so Dr. Fauci needs to be clear in certain areas of the country that are not hot spots, perhaps they're transitioning into an endemic space, or perhaps it's because Omicron 2.0 has not yet arrived there. We continue to look at patterns of behavior, right? When we look at the original COVID, Alpha, Beta, Delta, and now Omicron, you've seen it sort of converge. It was on East Coast, West Coast, and then you saw things start to take off in the Midwest, start to take off in the South. 
What I would hate to see is people get even more complacent and more comfortable. And instead of a 60% increase where we go from 25,000 new cases to 60-something thousand new cases, now we're back in the six digits. And that's what's likely going to happen if everyone truly believes that we are now in an endemic space. There will be no need for masks. There will be no need for testing. And what's the point of even getting treated if it's endemic, seasonal, and no more significant than a common cold? That we have to be clear in terms of what this virus will do, especially when we have to take into consideration long COVID. Um, I did want to ask you this. There's a there's an interesting article in Washington Post about people who got COVID and then you know got treated and got it again. Um, mm-hmm. And there, but uh, it's what I want to ask you about, particularly in that they they talk about a new um, antiviral pill. And I know that you and I, uh, the, the three of us, we talked a while back about this antiviral pills that had come out and that at that time. I think this was about a month or two ago. And if someone tested positive, boom, you get the antiviral pills and you could take them with no, you know, with no um, prescription or anything. Do we have any information on the antiviral pills, how effective they were, how that worked out or anything like that? We do have information about how effective it was. So what Pfizer looked at was how much does this medication decrease the risk of hospitalization and how much does this medication reduce the risk of death? It did not look at whether or not it was able to minimize symptomatology. That's a lot different than a medication like Tamiflu. Tamiflu is a medication we use for influenza. Studies have shown that with that medication, it not only decreases the length of time that you have symptoms, but also the severity of symptoms. And so it's not surprising that we are seeing folks still symptomatic even in the face of taking Paxlovid, that was not the goal of the medication. What the medication does do is decrease how severe those symptoms are felt in terms of protecting against hospitalization and death. The challenge with it is, again, the government, because of a lack of funding now, particularly for those who are uninsured, they need to get tested in order to get the medication. It isn't as simple as I got COVID, let me go get this medication. There's specific criteria that have to be met in order for folks to be able to get the medication. Thankfully, it's more readily available now than it was a couple of months ago, but it's still hard to get it. In addition, most people still have to see a doctor to get a prescription. It's not like you can go on a corner store and go get you some Paxlovid. There has to be some sort of connection to either a pharmacy or a physician or other healthcare professional in order to get this medication. And you have a short amount of time in order to do it. And if you don't get tested to confirm that you have COVID, then you're out of pocket. And that takes us to another story, another rare virus puzzle. They got sick, got treated, got COVID again. Patients who have experienced relapses after taking Paxlovid is puzzled and concerned. On Twitter, physicians and patients alike are engaged in a rare and a real-time group brainstorm about what might be happening with scant evidence to work with. Right especially when we say if you get treated and you only have to stay in your house for five days, what does that look like? Especially if folks believe that since they've taken this medication, they're no longer at risk for transmitting COVID. It speaks to the fact that this is not, this is not a perfect medication. Again, the goal of the medication was not to decrease the risk of transmission. It truly was to decrease the risk of severity in terms of linking you to having to go to the hospital and dying from covid It goes back to your point. It's all about messaging. When you take this medication, what should my expectation be? Should it be that I'm going to be symptom-free? Should it be that I am at a lower risk of transmitting COVID? Or is it simply 
that I won't get severely ill and I'm not going to die because I took the medication. And I think that that is the messaging that we need to have um, out there so that people have the right expectations. What are you seeing in your practice? There have been just a handful. It's certainly much less than it was with Omicron 1.0. But again, it goes back to what we talked about before. For most folks, because the perception is that this is a gentler, milder version of COVID, there isn't necessarily the need to go in to either one, get tested, because now we have the availability of home-based testing, and two, the fact that it's a relatively, compared to OG COVID, not as significantly impacting them. Is it worse than a cold? Absolutely. Have I had phone calls and telemedicine visits? Yes, but people actually having to come in physically in order to be seen, particularly among the pediatric population, I have not. We've been able to manage most of our patients at home without them having to come in. Now, the most important question, follow-up question should be, what about after they've recovered fully? What I will tell you is I'm seeing a greater number of people who are trying to navigate through dealing with long COVID symptoms. That has been the shift in terms of how we are addressing this pandemic. And that is also something that we really need to talk about, especially within communities of color, because if we're disproportionately impacted by COVID-19 infections, we are also going to be disproportionately impacted by COVID, by long COVID. And it is speculated that between, based on data, between 10 to 30% of those who do not get vaccinated against COVID, that 10 to 30% of them will go on to develop long COVID symptoms. And in a meta-analysis that was just published, looking globally, over 49% of individuals across the globe who've had COVID have gone on to experience long COVID symptoms. And it isn't just the symptoms themselves, but the collateral damage in terms of presenteeism and absenteeism, meaning I show up for work, but I can't work to my full potential, or I'm too fatigued, too much, too much brain fog going on for me to be able to show up. We have to also talk about what the economic and employment and academic impacts are going to be for individuals who go on to develop long COVID. As we get out, we got 30 seconds. You, when you mentioned brain fog, it made me think about Joe Biden and his oh, no. brain fog. Uh, and he's had he's had COVID and now Vice President Harris ha- mm-hmm. comes up with COVID. It'll be interesting to see if we have to deal uh, maybe we have to turn our headlights on or our fog lights and we were dealing with this with this brain fog. Uh, <laughs> Dr. Uh, uh, Dr. Get them all some anti-inflammatory. We, That's what I would suggest. Okay. <laughs> all right. All right. Dr. Yolandra Hancock, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate it. And we look forward to having you back. My pleasure. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Uh, there's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. ABC News reports German bosses and unions jointly oppose boycott of Russian gas. Germany's employers and trade unions have joined together in opposing an immediate European Union ban on natural gas imports from Russia over its invasion of Ukraine. That's from ABC News. Germany's employers and unions saying such a move would lead to factory shutdowns and the loss of jobs 
in the bloc's largest economy. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He holds the Moore's Professorship of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston. He's one of the most prolific writers of our time. His latest book is entitled The Bittersweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing. Dr. Gerald Horn, as always, sir, welcome back. Thank you for inviting me. So, quote, a rapid gas embargo would lead to loss of production, shutdowns, a further deindustrialization, and the long-term loss of work positions in Germany, end quote. This is Rainer <coughs> Dulger, chairman of the BDA Employers Group, and Reiner Hoffman, chairman of the DGB Trade Union Confederation, in a joint statement yesterday—I'm sorry, on Monday— Dr. Horn, this is not a good outlook for Olaf Scholz. What comes to my mind is the first sentence of Casey at the bat, the outlook wasn't brilliant for the Mudville Nine that day. Your thoughts, sir? Well, I I think you have a point. And keep in mind as well that even before these latest announcements, uh, Berlin was entering choppy waters. You recall that Madame Le Pen, the neo-fascist running for president of France, did quite well in the French elections. And one of her talking points was an anti-German line, which goes contrary to the basic thrust of the European Union, which has been based upon a Berlin-Paris axis. Certainly the victor, Mr. Macron, cannot ignore her 42% of the electorate and the ethos that she represents. And then there is a point that's oftentimes forgotten, which is that the Federal Republic of Germany also, as you know, includes the former German Democratic Republic or Socialist East Germany. And within the former GDR, within the former Socialist East Germany, uh, there is a certain amount of antipathy Uh, to NATO, uh, to the North Atlantic Bloc, uh, to the United States of America more specifically, and a certain sympathy to Russia, where you may recall a young Vladimir Putin uh, once served in Dresden in the former GDR. And put on top of that the point, as recently announced, that Gazprom, the behemoth uh, headquartered in Russia, that supplies natural gas uh, to a good deal of Western Europe is apparently restricting exports to both Poland and Bulgaria. Uh, That is going to have knock-on effects in Germany since as a result of the conclusion of the Cold War, you have a situation where a lot of German industry has been exported to Poland in particular. And so what the moguls in Germany were suggesting that might befall their own country is about to hit Poland with a wallop. With regard to Bulgaria, I think that many of these amateurs who pass themselves off as pundits do not necessarily recall that there had been a close relationship between Bulgaria and Russia even before the Russian Revolution of 1917, going back to the fact that it was Tsarist Russia that helped to rescue Bulgaria from the clutches of the Ottoman Turks in the 1870s. And indeed, one of the reasons, one of the many reasons why you have 
such sympathy uh, for Russia uh, in southeastern Europe is because of that historic uh, conjuncture that I've just mentioned. And then on top of everything else, you saw the trip to Moscow, supposedly being followed by a trip to Kiev by the U.N. Secretary General, uh, Mr. Guterres, uh, who was lectured on camera by President Putin, reminding him that during the so-called Kosovo crisis, you had the situation where the U.S. and its allies decided willy-nilly that a vote in the Kosovo parliament uh, could mean secession from a larger Serbia. And Mr. Putin is saying what's sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. Uh, that is to say, if that is the case for Kosovo, why could not it be the case for Crimea or the Donbass? Or I might add, <laughs> to speak hypothetically, of course, if uh, China and Russia uh, wanted to establish a reliant, uh, an alliance with folks in North Philadelphia or West Philadelphia or Anacostia in Washington, D.C., perhaps they could establish a Blackistan with the consent of the people there. I mean, this is the level to which we have reached in light of the fact that the North Atlantic powers during the so-called unipolar moment of the United States was running roughshod over international law, constructing a so-called rules-based international order that basically meant whatever the United States uh, wants goes. But now we're in a multipolar situation, and the United States is both flummoxed and bollocked by this new state of affairs. Uh, you know, we were speaking of the, you know, the uh, political uh, plight uh, potentially of uh, Olaf Scholz in the in the in the in the near to midterm. Things don't don't look so great here either. Fifty eight percent of voters open to backing independent candidate if faced with Biden Trump, according to a poll. Fifty eight percent they were open to supporting a moderate independent presidential candidate in a contest between President Biden and former President Trump. When we look at some of the more number, some of the other numbers, sixty three percent of respondents said they didn't want Biden to run for. A, Second term, only 37% said they did want him to run again in 2024. Interesting stuff going on here. What Are, are we going to look at nobody getting 270 and it falling, falling back to the House, which, of course, by then will likely be overwhelmingly Republican? Your thought on that poll, the polls and what they tell us about the U.S.? Well, not only the Electoral College, but as you know, the Republicans in a number of red states were rigging the game. Uh, that is to say, I'm sure you've been following what's been happening with the January 6th committee and all the plans with regard to not necessarily accepting the electoral votes of certain states and the plan that apparently Vice President Mike Pence thought was in play to actually kidnap him. He refused to get into the limousine on that fateful day because he thought his security was in cahoots uh, with this diabolical plan. And so it's going to be very difficult, I'm afraid to say, to overcome these formidable hurdles that the conservatives and the Republicans are lying before, laying before us because uh, they've determined that they will not lose another presidential election, a uh, full stop. By any means necessary, they plan to prevail. And speaking of planning to prevail, that also seems to be the case with regard to the Ukraine. I'm sure you followed the remarks 
of uh, Pentagon chief Lloyd Austin, where in a sense he moved the goalposts. Now the goalpost seems to be not necessarily helping to protect Ukraine, but weakening Russia. Now, the readout from at least according to the summary of the chat shows prepared by Gilbert Doctorow, whose uh, writings I recommend to your audience, the readout from Moscow is that that bespeaks a deteriorating situation on the battlefield for Ukraine. And so, therefore, Washington has decided to up the ante. Uh, This shipping of more weapons into Ukraine bespeaks that, not to mention the meeting in the Ramstein uh, Air Base uh, in uh, Germany, presided over by Mr. Austin and including uh, many military chiefs and leading figures from nations as disparate as Australia and, and Western Europe. But I'm not sure if Mr. Austin recognizes that, A, a lot of the weaponry that's being shipped into Ukraine is being destroyed on the ground, or B, it's being sold by the corruption maniacs uh, in Ukraine, oftentimes to the Russians, who are inheriting a rather sizable arsenal, not to mention the fact that it helps to increase the possibility that Moscow will see a Poland, for example, the major frontline state, as a co-belligerent, that is to say it a party to this conflict worthy of being attacked. And certainly in that regard, the turning off of the natural gas taps to Poland uh, may signal that that is in motion. And speaking of turning off the natural gas taps and speaking of the dismal outlook for the United States of America, uh, even though uh, Gazprom's uh, activity in Bulgaria and Poland does not have a direct impact on natural gas prices in the United States of America, you better believe that Duke Energy and another other natural gas producers in the United States will say that it does. And so people should look for a rise in their um, natural gas prices uh, if they are heating their homes with natural gas. Or, for example, if they're not using an electric stove and using a natural gas stove, Uh, They may have to cut back on their cooking. And interestingly enough, that is the message that's now being sent out to a good deal of Western Europe. Messages about driving slowly because you won't necessarily have the advantage of Russian petroleum, uh, turning down the thermostat, uh, wearing a sweater, uh, even though it's supposedly uh, approaching late spring. So this is the dismal scenario that faces the North Atlantic countries not least because they could not figure out what the world balance of forces was at a particular moment. And it's interesting you mentioned Duke Energy and some of the other gas uh, companies and and energy producers in this country because one of the things that we've been talking about uh, as it relates to inflation in this country is price gouging. And that seems to be one of the real drivers behind a lot of increases uh, that uh, people are facing here that isn't really uh, being discussed. Let me just quickly go back to this 58 percent of voters open to backing independent candidate if faced with Biden and Trump. Uh, What does that say to you? Does it does it really mean anything significantly as it relates to third party politics in the United States? hard to really say, although it would not surprise me at all if behind the scenes Mitt Romney 
is preparing such a third-party race since he's bolted from the GOP with regard to the vote on the Supreme Court Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson and made other maneuvers in that direction. But I think that those who are interested in a third-party race would be well-advised to try to run on a peace platform because since the Democrats and a goodly number of the Republicans have fallen head over heels with war in Ukraine, uh, fallen in love with war in Ukraine, it seems to open a broad thoroughfare for a peace candidate, not unlike Eugene McCarthy in 1968, uh, who drove LBJ out of the race, you may recall, uh, after he did so well uh, in New Hampshire and other primaries. So Mr. Biden would do well to look over his shoulder. More than that, he would do well to de-escalate and negotiate. But I'm afraid to say he's moving in an opposing direction. We have just about a minute left. Responsible statecraft has a peace surprise. Ex-general pushing for NATO troops in Ukraine has weapons industry ties. Your thoughts quickly about how that part of the story doesn't get articulated as these individuals are being called analysts on mainstream Western media. Well, I'm sure you recall the meeting that was held a few days ago with Mr. Biden and leaders of the military-industrial complex. And keep keep in mind, I think uh, you should also be aware of the fact that the former NATO Supreme Commander, Philip Breedlove, has talked about posting boots on the ground of NATO within Ukraine, uh, which would be opening the gates of hell. Dr. Gerald Horn, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate it. We look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. The Miami Herald reports Iran's attempts to kill Pompeo. Current U.S. officials are real and ongoing, Blinken says. What are we to make of this? Well, let's turn to our next guest. He's a broadcaster, analyst, and journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon. Laith Marouf, as always. Laith, welcome back. Thank you for having me. Iran's attempts to assassinate former Secretary of State Pompeo are real and ongoing, his successor, Anthony Blinken, told Congress yesterday. Testifying before a Senate panel, Blinken acknowledged details made public last month in a sensitive State Department report that outlined a security arrangement for the former secretary involving round-the-clock government protection. Quote, I'm not sure what I can say in an open setting, but let me say generically that there is an ongoing threat against American officials, both present and past, end quote, according to Blinken. Lath, a generic ongoing threat against American officials, 
nor a security arrangement for the former secretary involving round-the-clock government protection does not a contract on his life make. As we look at the failure of the Biden administration to get us back into the JCPOA, this announcement to me really sounds suspect. Blinken, and also Blinken was responding to questioning from Ted Cruz, who asked the secretary whether the administration was requiring Iran to pledge not to murder a former secretary of state. Uh, uh, Leith, help me out here, man. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, just the word generic. I mean, what comes to my mind is that these American officials are responsible for the death of millions of people and the destruction of the livelihood of tens of millions of people. And of course, uh, you know, those millions of people and their families, they would love to uh, get revenge back for these crimes. And of course, there will be a generic uh, threat to American officials that are all war criminals. Does that uh, make it true that Iran is attempting to assassinate Pompeo? Of course not. Uh, but at the same time, we do have to remember that uh, Iran said it will punish those who were responsible for the assassination of General Soleimani. Uh, of course, I don't think they will be um, going the path of assassination because as we see the developments in Iran around this issue is there's going to be an actual court uh, being set up to try the American officials that were uh, and those who aided them uh, and the, in the assassination of General Soleimani. And I think that that will have a, um, you know, uh, combined with Iran's activities in West Asia to expel the United States from uh, the region, that will be their uh, ideal revenge. You know, could I call me cynical, but could it be that because the JCOP, J, JCPOA, the, uh, the nuclear agreement is teetering on the edge, there are forces such as the Israelis, such as likely Blinken, who don't want it to happen. At the same time, they say Iran, and I love this one now, they're two weeks, two weeks away from a bomb. Now, I can find uh, articles 20 years old literally, that says they're six months from a bomb. Every year, they're a week, two weeks, six months, whatever, from a bomb. So now, right at the time when the Iran nuclear deal needs to be signed and could, there's an opportunity that it potentially could be signed, which I never believed it would anyway, uh, the Iranians are going to kill uh, 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 Pompeo and, oh, yeah, they're two weeks from away from a bomb. Uh, I, I just think it's the neocons inside playing the various factions playing their games. Do, do you know why it's two weeks away and they don't have one now? Why? Two reasons. One, supply chain problems. Oh, geez. And the <laughs> other, the other <laughs> reason is because uh, U U.S. Postal Service has reclassified first-class mail. So now it takes longer to get letters delivered. They, sh they should use Prime. They could get it in one day. 
Well, let's talk to. Uh, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, go, go ahead, Lee. I'm uh, sorry. Like, go ahead, go ahead, sorry Lee. about that. We're trying to, you know, figure out the problem with two weeks. That's yes, a long yes, time. it's really hard. It's really hard to uh, accept, of course, the logic of the United States, <laughs> and, and and you know, just for our audience uh, on the serious side here, uh, Iran has always had the knowledge and the capabilities to build a nuclear weapon, and it, you know, today an announcement was made by by one of uh, the senior generals that uh, they have uh, ballistic missiles that can you know that are uh, global in reach so they can reach any target in the United States and that that can tell you that if they actually wanted to do that they can do it so that's not the point here is 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 Iran close to achieving a nuclear weapon Iran does not want to uh, you know produce a nuclear weapon because Militarily speaking, it doesn't need it. Uh, a, a country that wants to invade Iran will need to uh, put together an invading army of uh, millions, not only hundreds of thousands of people because of the terrain and the defensive capabilities of Iran currently make it impossible for an invasion to happen, not even from the Israelis if they would love to. Uh, so uh, what we hear right now is the constant flip-flopping of in the United States between uh, claiming that they want to return to the JCPOA and on the other uh, making statements such as this one that make it impossible to go to, to the JCPOA because the United States has no intention actually of going back to this deal. The intention of the United States is to delay any developments in Western Asia on the, on the ground, on the military fields until it can uh, deal with the situation with Russia and China. And Iran understands that, and I think will not wait for the United States to have a better uh, bargaining uh, situation. Uh, two things. One, I I've spent uh, over the uh, probably 20 days in, in two trips in, in Iran. I, I spoke, I met with uh, former President Ahmadinejad uh, with a group. We spent two hours with him. In all of the conversations that I had with people, whether it the lectures I gave at universities or interviews I gave, I never got the sense from anybody that I spoke to that there was real anger with the United States. What I got a sense of was there's just utter disgust with the United States. There's incredible uh, disappointment and there's a, a lot of confusion, but I never got the sense that anybody there would be talking or advocating about assassinating an American official. And with that, Leith, let me ask you this. With Iran being a theocracy, in Islam, what's the Quranic position on assassination? Is that a, is that a fair question to ask? Yes, of course, of course. You know, in any culture, obviously, assassinating somebody uh, outside a, a, a battlefield is uh, is a dishonorable thing. Except you know? the United <laughs> States, because because <laughs> yes. President uh, our, our our late attorney, our former Attorney General uh, under Obama said that an American president can assassinate an American citizen anywhere in the world without judicial review. So the United States is very clear that, oh, we that's our game. We, we don't have a problem with that. Go, go ahead. And to go back to your point about what people feel outside the United States, people don't hold American 
people as responsible for the crimes of their elite. We don't hold hate Mm -hmm. towards Americans or Europeans. We hold contempt to the elite in these countries and the governing uh, peoples who are committing these crimes in the names of Americans. So this is important, you know, there is no uh, tsunami of propaganda, let's say, in the Arabic world and or Iran that uh, creates hate, constant hate in film and movies and television against Americans or white people, contrary to what the Americans do with their media of constantly producing hate against others uh, from other cultures. Turkey is um, involved in a military operation in northern Iraq. The Kurds are saying it could be an occupation. I do know the Iraqis weren't necessarily all that thrilled about it. What are your thoughts on what's going on with the with the Turkey military operation going on in northern Iraq? Well, this is a story that continues developing. And uh, as we see uh, currently, the the Speaker of the House of Iraq is in uh, the capital of Iran today. Uh, There was a discussion on the activities of Turkey in North Iraq. Uh, You know, our um, listeners must know, of course, that it's been more than almost three months now since the elections were conducted in Iraq and they have not been able to form a government, appoint a new president or a new prime minister. And the uh, actions of Turkey uh, in North Iraq right now uh, are, you know, in this context, Turkey is taking advantage of the vacuum of power right now in Iraq to attempt to take more of the lands in the north and uh, encroach closer and closer to the major city in the north, which is Mosul. Uh, And uh, of course, this is going to lead to a very volatile situation where uh, either the Kurdish militias in the Kurdish regions of Iraq and or uh, the popular mobilization units could end up being in a direct confrontation uh, in North Iraq with the Turkish troops. Who is, and I hope this isn't a stupid question, are the Kurdish forces in Iraq aligned with the Iraqi government or are they still trying to establish their own territory? Well, the Kurdish regions right now are are like a fiefdom controlled by a family uh, and uh, unfortunately the federal government in Baghdad has almost zero control uh, on the borders and on the flow of oil outside of Kurdistan. It's been years that the Kurdish uh, regions have refused to send their uh, royalties on oils to the federal government. Um, And so... To the Iraqi government. Yes, the federal Iraqi government. Mm -hmm. That's Mm -hmm. what I meant. I'm sorry. Uh, I know the United States is a federal state (laughs) also, so I should be very careful when I say that. So what I'm trying to say is that uh, we have a, a vacuum right now of governing in uh, Iraq and uh, the Kurdish militias in control of these uh, regions are uh, enjoying that. But now we see Turkey uh, uh, trying to pressure on the north of Iraq, which means most probably it wants a better deal with these Kurdish uh, contracts on their smuggling of uh, Iraqi oil. It's not going to be a real confrontation. It's more about uh, how much of the oil fields 
will be dedicated to servicing Turkey. Um, how does that affect or is that related to the Kurds that are in Syria that are, you know, have been working with the United States? Yeah, I mean, there's a rivalry right now uh, between the uh, Kurdish Contras in Syria, in Iraq, in Iran and Turkey. There's like a, a four way uh, kind of uh, rivalry. And uh, we see it uh, sometimes playing out uh, when the uh, YPG crosses from Syria and or the Qandil uh, faction of the Kurdish militias uh, that are hiding on the border uh, with Iran uh, attack uh, the Peshmerga uh, in, in Iraq. So there's a rivalry. And of course, the United States plays on all of that, along with the rivalry with Turkey, to extract uh, the best price for its uh, presence in both Iraq and Syria. Laith Marouf, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. You have a great evening. You too. Thank you very much. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. There is a piece in Orinoco Tribune, and you can also find it at Black Agenda Report, entitled Ukraine, A New Consensus on Whiteness. The Biden administration and corporate media cover up the existence of white supremacists and neo-Nazis in Ukraine. They also disappeared from the official narrative in order to get public buy-in for U.S. policy. What does all of this really mean? Well, for insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's the national organizer for the Black Alliance for Peace. He serves on the executive committee of the U.S. Peace Council and leadership body of the United National Anti-War Coalition and the steering committee for the Black is Back Coalition. He's the editor and contributing columnist for, for Black Agenda Report and the author of this piece. Ajamu Baraka, as always, welcome back. Glad to be here. Thank you. So how do you balance your observation, an accurate observation, about the support of uh, white supremacists and neo-Nazis in Ukraine? These are Europeans fighting Europeans. <laughs> How do I balance that? Well, yes. I mean, how do you square that circle? It, it, well, that's that's going to be that's going to be a difficult one, not for me necessarily, but I think for uh, for liberals in the United States of America, because even though you have Europeans fighting Europeans, uh, you have one side, the Ukrainians, who have clearly embraced um, a white supremacist framework, uh, a neo. Uh, a, a neo-Nazi uh, framework um, versus another, uh, the other side that uh, has other kinds of issues. But the main thing here for us is that um, in trying to develop support for the side that the U.S. has taken, which is with the Ukrainian state, uh, they have attempted to try to disappear the reality that in that state and in that society are these dangerous uh, ultra-right white supremacist and neo-Nazi elements. 
Um, and in doing that, they are, in fact, laying a foundation to not only uh, legitimize the uh, ultra-right in the United States, but to to legitimize the ultra-right across the European continent at a time where uh, these rightist uh, movements are gaining more and more confidence and become, become more emboldened um, and pose a real threat to non-European people, especially as a consequence of the role that Ukraine has played in providing opportunity for rightist forces across the uh, uh, globe, but primarily from Europe, to go to Ukraine and get real life experience, military and ideological experience, uh, is very, very dangerous. So that's the difference, that even though it's two, it's two European powers fighting among themselves, uh, one poses a much more serious threat to non-Europeans than the other. Let me just add one one thing to that. I think some of this also, this, this conversation reminds me of uh, Orwell's Animal Farm, where all of the animals on the farm are equal, but some are more equal than others as it relates to Europeans fighting Europeans. Because as I understand it, the Nazis in the West, they are anti-Russian and they are anti-Eastern Ukrainian because they see the Eastern Ukrainians as Eastern Slavs and they, in their minds, they are lesser than those in the West. And they speak Russian. And they speak Russian. Well, Go ahead. Let me take a different, a, a little different perspective on this and say this. The U.S. empire, because we can say this to Europeans, the U.S. Europeans as part of the U.S. empire, doesn't like the Russians or the Ukrainians. And here's what I mean. They, if you look at history out there, the U.S. empire has worked hard to ensure for many years, the CIA has been in there to ensure that this Nazi, this really nasty Nazi um, ideology is inculcated into the Ukrainian society, right, which is not in their be- 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 uh, in, in their benefit on their best behalf. And then they instigate a fight where the Ukrainians are going to get massacred. So they sit back and say, you know what? We're going to let the Slavic Russians and the Slavic Ukrainians massacre each other. And we'll sit back and pretend we're taking one side when really all we're doing is wiping out these people, destabilizing them. And then we'll go in. Ideally, what they want to do, it's not going to work, is go in and take the winnings. So they're not really on the side of the Ukrainians. And I guess I could argue it's it's not Europeans fighting Europeans. I think it's the Europeans saying we can have the Slavs, you know, kind of wipe each other out and we'll sit there and that way we don't have to use any Euro- lose any Europeans or Americans. What are your thoughts? <laughs> well, you know, it, it, it's, it's an interesting take. Uh, and I think that you, you're partially correct in terms of the, the, the consequence. And that is that the, whatever uh, objectives the Ukrainian nationalists uh, had in Aligned themselves with the U.S. and 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 up and, and opposing uh, Russia, uh, in order to uh, solidify their their national aspirations, are, are now um, are going to be um, um, unsustainable. And in fact, they're not going to be realizable because the consequence of this war is that the Ukrainian state is going to be shrunken, um, and the little bit of sovereignty that the uh, present government had in Ukraine which is very little, 
uh, will, will be completely disappeared as a consequence of the, of the recolonization, if you will, of the rest of Ukraine, Western Ukraine, by the U.S. Uh, and by, the, uh, by European capital. So in a way, you're right that, that this, this fight, while you know, they're pretending to be on the side of the Ukrainians, we know that ultimately the only side that they are on is the side of capital. And the main objective of this war in Ukraine was to disarticulate the Russian economy from the European economy, because the real objective uh, is to make, make sure that uh, there is a, a, the conditions exist for the continued hegemony of U.S. capital. So, yeah, you're right. They've always been able to sacrifice other people uh, in order to advance their particular interests. And it's really shameful that uh, this is happening once again right on the heels of of the obvious example of how the Afghan people were used. And a few months later now they have the Ukrainian people being sacrificed again to advance the interests of European, uh, European and U.S. capital. It's shameful. How does the 1999 U.S. and NATO bombing of Serbia for 78 days factor into your analysis? That what we had there was the uh, because there was no countervailing force in the world as a consequence of the counter-revolution in the Soviet Union. Uh, the U.S. was able to uh, and NATO using NATO to uh, to use the military option to advance their uh, their strategic objectives. In this case. It was to complete the dismemberment of Yugoslavia. Uh, but what, what the, the, the connection to this, they did this outside of the, of the framework of international law. There was no uh, United Nations Security Council uh, 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 resolution to allow them to attack Serbia. They did it outside of that framework. And they, they set the, the foundation for the kind of rogue statism that we saw the U.S. involve itself in throughout the first two decades of this new century up to this present moment. So it, it had the effect of undermining any respect, any real regard uh, for international law and legitimizing the rogue state activity of, of the U.S. and the West. One of the things you talk about is the whitewashing of these neo-Nazis in Ukraine um, in order to support the U.S.-backed government will have domestic political consequences. What are, what are those polit- domestic political consequences? You know, you, you start up. We started off the conversation. Well, how do we square what appears to be these contradictions? And you know, the the, the, the neoliberals and liberals pretend to be the, the champions of of, of, of anti racism. Uh, they criticize the Trump forces uh, for being racist. But how do you how do you embrace the neo Nazis and ultra right uh, in Ukraine who are, who are effectively legitimizing white supremacy? And then turn around and suggest that the Trumpian forces are, in fact, white supremacists. You know, it's going to be very difficult for them to, to have the kind of ideological weapon that they had, they had the first time around in trying to beat back the Trumpian forces. So that's going to be one of the political and ideological consequences of their embracing uh, the ultra-right in, in Ukraine, in my opinion. You know, Gutierrez met with President Putin, I think, earlier today and was taken to task, I mean, was just taught a lesson uh, about the hypocrisy of the U.N. position trying to hold uh, Russia accountable for, you know, war crimes and, and, all, and, and, and violating international law. Uh, and it's interesting because a number of the things that, uh, that President Putin highlighted 
within his discussion uh, with Gutierrez are points that he's been making for a number of years, but they just fall upon either they fall upon deaf ears or they get swallowed up by the narrative. He's a madman. He's irrational. All he wants to do is reunify the Soviet Union. He wants to take over the Ukraine and uh, and all oh, and, and he kidnapped the Lindbergh baby. I mean, there's just the the, the idiocy just is is amazing but but i mean he took gutierrez to task and a lot of what he said is are a number of the points that you made in your piece exactly one 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 that he did raise i thought was kind of funny was the the example of kosovo that the the western uh europe western european powers uh, all every everyone recognized kosovo when they claimed uh self uh self-determination and independence but yet everybody's rejecting the right of the people in Donetsk and Luhansk to do the same. So, yeah, he, 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 he took up the school uh, and really revealed uh, the consistent uh, contradictions and, and inconsistencies with adhering to international, to international law on the part of the United Nations. And the United States is trying to now summon the, the ICC, the International Criminal Court, and the United States is not a signatory to it. Exactly. It's, it's outrageous. It's absurd, as a matter of fact, they, that, that the U.S. will be the state that's pushing a, a notion of crimes against humanity and war crimes against any other state on the planet, when they are the number one violators of international law, human rights, um, and are the ones most responsible for undermining the credibility of international law because of their rogue activity is really outrageous. Ajamu Baraka, as always, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate that analysis. And again, folks, you can uh, find this piece, uh, A New Consensus on white Ukraine, A New Consensus on Whiteness. You can find it at Orinoco Tribune as well as Black Agenda Report. Greatly appreciate it, and we look forward to having you back. My pleasure. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. There is an interesting piece in Black Agenda Report entitled, Obama Wants Censorship. Uh, Barack Obama and his ruling class bosses are losing legitimacy with more and more people. They have decided that censoring information will resolve their problems. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. She's the editor and senior columnist at Black Agenda Report and author of Prejudential, Black America and the Presidents. And she's the author of this piece, Margaret Kimberly. As always, Margaret, welcome back. Thank you. You opened by writing uh, on April 21st, 2022, former President Obama gave a speech at Stanford on the subject of social media. In typical Obama-esque fashion, he didn't state his point plainly. He used a lot of time, more than an hour, to advocate for social media censorship. He only used that word once in order to deny that it was, in fact, what he meant. But the weasel words and obfuscation couldn't hide what Obama was talking about. Uh, Margaret, that assessment contradicts the standard perception of the leftist Barack Obama. 
Oh, sure it does. And that's why he, they trot him out to do these things. Uh, he actually, it was actually the second speech he gave in a, a couple of weeks, the first at the University of Chicago, about disinformation. And, uh, of course, he doesn't say that he's censoring. He says, I'm not talking about censorship. But if, that if you listen to him, that's exactly what he's talking about. He's talking about regulating what the social media platforms uh, are, are allowed to present to the public. That is censorship, period. It's censorship 101. And, of course, he covers it up with concerns about uh, democracy being at risk. Well, the little bit of democracy we have is at, is at risk, but it's not because of what anybody puts on Twitter or Facebook. It's because of him and his friends. But uh, uh, so he is talking about if you get through the, you know, overly long remarks, that's exactly what he is talking about. Um, and Hillary Clinton chimed in, too, uh, I believe, on the same day with the tweet uh, supporting what the EU is doing, um, uh, claiming they are going to take uh, remove illegal content. And what is illegal? It's not clear. So they want to shut people up uh, because they are in a bind. They have um, uh, this war in Ukraine is exposing all of the cracks in the system. You have a, a weak president, a physically ill president who instigated this war, uh, who uh, is now trying to tell people that, um, yeah, you're going to have food shortages and, you know, coming up with, you know, nonsense like Putin's price hikes and whatever. And the problem is this government, which has gone back on all of its, this administration, gone back on all of their promises, everything they said to get votes in 2020, they have not done. And uh, so what they need to do is shut people up because they are uh, faltering and faltering because of their own actions. Well, I can give you an example of some of that illegal conduct, because even as we speak, Margaret, I am in timeout for 12 hours from Twitter for violating their rules against hateful conduct. It says you may not promote violence against, threaten, or harass other people on the basis of, and they give a lot of things, race, ethnicity, national, uh, natural, national or, origin, etc. right? Well, here's my tweet. And, you know, I always do comedy like breaking news tweets, usually sarcastic breaking news in a shock to no one who has ever opened a history book. Germany is providing military equipment to goose stepping Sieg Heiling freaks who are adorned with swastikas and fighting Russian troops, tr uh, troops on the Eastern Front. So apparently my the best I can see is I must have threatened, harassed or something. I, I'm guessing I harassed Nazis on the basis of something or other. I don't know. But it appears that I violated a Nazi harassment rule, Margaret. I mean, is that what Obama was talking about? Who stands for the Nazis? Well, you know, they're the already States. censoring. Yeah, they, they're already censoring, to, to your point. I mean, people have been kicked off. Uh, anybody labeled Russia-affiliated media, uh, if you uh, criticize the Ukrainian government in any way, even as you did, which is clearly sarcasm to me, although I don't know what's wrong with making fun of Nazis anywhere, um, then you're in danger of being removed. But apparently it's not enough for him. They are terrified that people have uh, forums in which they can um, speak their minds and share information. So, uh, you know, Obama, he talks about the Obama Foundation and helping young people and uh, uh, protecting democracy from Putin and China and Trump and uh, whoever the hell else. 
that all you have to do is read what he says. He's talking about censorship. Now, these big tech platforms, I believe, should be regulated, but they should be regulated in favor of the public. They should be regulated as public utilities, and they should guarantee free and open access to everybody. But that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about limiting access. And he does it in a way that liberals love, you know, talking about how, you know, January 6th, it was the end of the world, and Putin eats babies, and, you know, we've got to bolster democracy. This democracy must be pretty weak if uh, a president in another country that hardly anybody, uh, that everyone's told to hate can endanger our democracy. But that's a whole uh, other story. But the other problem they have is Biden himself. Biden uh, cannot finesse things. So uh, Biden came out and said when he was in Europe a few weeks ago, oh, yeah, there are going to be food shortages because of their sanctions on Russia. Well, Putin, I'm sorry, Obama would not have said that. He would have talked around it, made you think that there was even more food. But they're stuck with Biden, who's not well, who blurts out everything. So they need as much help as they can get. And for them, um, uh, this all this talk about disinformation is what they are uh, depending upon in order to silence people. You mentioned Obama gave his uh, remarks on April 21st of this year, and then you said he was it was followed up by Hillary Clinton. Do you get the sense that they're putting out a trial balloon, testing the waters for a possible third run by Hillary Clinton in 24? Well, you know, that is a possibility. I, um, I, I can't imagine anybody thinking that she could win, but, uh, you know, they do use her at opportune times, I would not be surprised because um, they, Biden's not running again. They got lucky in pulling him over the finish line. Uh, He cannot run again. They don't want anyone even remotely, anyone who even pretends to be progressive. So they may fall back on Hillary. So I would not be surprised. And let, let me just be clear. When you say he cannot run again, technically he can. Your point is he, that it's 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 impractical, it's improbable, it's nonsensical. I, that, yeah. just, it, is, it is nonsensical. Yeah. He, he won because people uh, didn't like Trump. Uh, Trump lost because of, I think, mostly because of his COVID response, although Biden has been even worse. But the media protect him and don't talk about that. But there are too many. Biden has too many negatives. They, they can't let him run again. Kamala Harris has too many negatives. They can't uh, run her for uh, president. So, yeah, they might go back to Hillary. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, and uh, Bernie's talking about running again. My point on that would be why bother? They've already made it very, yeah. very clear that no one of your ideological ilk will be allowed to win, number one. And number two, I guarantee you that the people who run this party, the same types of people that thought CNN Plus would work, are looking at Amy Klobuchar, Claire McCaskill, Pete Booth. They're looking at them thinking, you know, one of those is really that's one of those is going to get it done. Which one do we go with? But wait a minute, though, Garland, because that takes us back to the conversation that we just had with Dr. Horn about this recent polling and how independents, 58 percent of Americans Americans say they want a third party candidate. Bernie runs as an independent. What say you, Margaret? Well, unless he's going to run as an independent, he certainly shouldn't bother. He's, you know, twice 
He, uh, sheep herded, sheep dogged, as uh, my late colleague Bruce Dixon, uh, I think, coined the phrase first. He was a sheep dog for the Democrats, gets people excited, and then tries to herd them back into the Democratic Party, which they don't want anymore. They uh, have knifed him in the back. Actually, I think they knifed him in the front mm-hmm. twice. Mm-hmm. So it would be ridiculous for him. Um, he's another one who's quite frankly too old to run for president. But anyway, if he was willing to run as an independent, it could be worthwhile. If not, it would just be a joke. The other thing I think that's interesting, I read an article, and I really believe this, that the the, the, the Democrats could, could never, ever recover unless they would admit the damage that Barack Obama d- did to their party and that, that since they can't do that, that this party is on a downward spiral that they can't pull out of. In fact, before you respond to that, let me read just a, a quick paragraph from your piece, Margaret. Now Obama has to live with his handiwork in Ukraine. He and Joe Biden began the crisis when they partnered with right-wing forces there in 2014 and overthrew the elected president. They are struggling to prop up the Ukrainians with billions of dollars while also trying to keep the American people from asking why they don't have child tax credits minimum wage increases or student loan debt relief. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, you can't fool all the people all of the time. And after two terms of uh, Obama, after hope and change was clearly a fraud, they couldn't drag Hillary over the Clinton, uh, the, the finish line. And, uh, you know, Trump, he was, a, uh, a, I think, a blip on the screen, although his victory showed the dissatisfaction that people had with the two major parties. Remember, the Republicans didn't think he'd win and didn't want him to win. So I think um, this this longing for another choice is why they want to shut people up. Um, Ukraine is a disaster for them. They are winning the propaganda war, but that does not mean that it helps them. So most people, if you ask them, is Vladimir Putin evil, they'll say yes. But do you want billions of dollars to go to Ukraine? The answer is no. And so all they have is propaganda. That's all they've got. Um, But the rest of it, they can't harm Russia without harming this country, without harming the rest of the world. So uh, they have to uh, just stick with uh, promoting their narrative and trying to shut people up, which is what Obama is talking about. I think the Ukraine crisis has also exposed that the um, the government of the United States has decoupled from the constituents because at a time when people, the polls surely clearly show that people are concerned with inflation and food prices and blah, 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 gas prices and things of that nature and health care, the government is in no way responding to those issues. So I think that that it has exposed something about our government to most people who are looking and saying, where are they for me? And they're like, we don't have time. We got to get more weapons over here to the Nazis. (laughs) There you go talking about Nazis. (laughs) Oh, I'm going to get myself in trouble. (laughs) Um, Yeah, they have have a very, very big problem. Uh, They cannot, this is a, a, you know, structure is very wobbly. And, uh, you know, you can promote blue and yellow flags all you want, but at the end of the day, that's not going to get people out to vote for Democrats. It just isn't. So um, they are doing everything they can, throwing everything against the wall to see what sticks, sticking with their propaganda, telling people it's for your benefit if we don't allow you to say what you want on Twitter or Facebook or even trotting out um, uh, Hillary, because... 
it's it's just too much. You know, Obama. What did we get with Obama? Every what was the one thing everybody would talk about if you questioned Obama? Obamacare. What about Obamacare? Well, it allows you to buy insurance that you can't afford and doesn't really help you any. So there comes a and Trump. They'll you know try to drag him out, but. Um, uh, that's not real either. So we're seeing uh, the stresses in the system play out right now. Margaret Kimberly, as always, thank you so much for your time. And again, your piece, Obama Wants Censorship. You can find it at Black Agenda Report. Uh, really appreciate it. Look forward to having you back. Thank you so much. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Caitlin Johnstone has a piece in Consortium News entitled, The Billionaire Savior of Twitter. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's a political cartoonist and syndicated columnist, Ted Rawl. As always, Ted, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Caitlin writes, you don't get to be a billionaire much less a billionaire with massively influential media ownership. Unless you collaborate with existing power, Musk has certainly been collaborating with the oligarchic empire very nicely up until this point, and it's a safe bet that his purchase would not be happening if the empire felt its narrative control machine was in any way threatened by it. Ted Rawl. Uh, you know, I think that's a fair point. Um, if Elon Musk is not some sort of uh, outsider rebel, even if he does like to uh, indulge in a little weed on video at inappropriate times sometimes. Uh, he's a quirky billionaire. Many uh, billionaires are quirky, but he, uh, when, it, when it comes down to matters of politics and capitalism and so on, he is very much part and parcel of the existing system, and all the hand-wringing about the future of Twitter is actually pretty hilarious considering that context. Well, you know, the, the issue here is also, um, okay, you've got the woke stuff and, you know, did you insult a trans person or something like that or whatever the case may be? Or did you like a maybe a, um, a Dave Chappelle uh, Netflix uh, skit that you shouldn't have liked? Okay, there's that kind of stuff, right? But the important thing here is, uh, let me give you an example. I know a guy named Garland Nixon who is in timeout for 12 hours, and I will read you the tweet that I was, uh, that violates their rules against um, threatening or harassing people on the basis of race, ethnicity, national origin, sexual orientation, etc. It says, breaking news, this is my tweet, in a shock to no one who has ever opened a history book, Germany is providing military equipment to goose-stepping, sieg-heiling freaks who are adorned with swastikas and fighting Russian troops on the Eastern Front. Clearly, we know Garland was talking about Azov Battalion-style Nazis, and it, uh, Twitter decided that I'm promoting violence and I'm threatening and harassing people, I guess based on their, you know, self-described choice as a, as a identification as Nazis. Here's my point, is 
Elon Musk going to say we're no longer going to censor Sputnik and press TV and RT and we're going to allow people now to actually criticize U.S. imperialist foreign policy? All that woke stuff is all good and fine. But is he going to stop Twitter from being used as a tool for the national security state? Ted Roll. Well, Garland, you know, now that you mentioned that, I do think I saw a comment uh, where Musk was asked about the deplatforming of RT, and which he said that was inappropriate, if I'm, if memory uh, serves. I think he fairly recently said that uh, R- that RT and by extension Sputnik should be uh, provided open platforms. So I guess I'm cautiously optimistic there. I I would suspect that if he plays an active role in the management of Twitter for very long, I would suspect that uh, Sputnik would uh, would be back on Twitter. And Caitlin uh, continues uh, in her piece. She says, believing Musk is going to save Twitter is as naive as believing Joe Biden was going to save America. Arguing over which oligarchs should control the media is as silly and undignified as arguing over which oligarch-owned politicians should run the government. Well, Twitter is currently uh, free Musk uh, run by oligarchs. I mean, every major corporation in America is. Uh, you know, it's, it's an un- the, if anything, Musk is going to be a little more accountable in that everyone's going to know who owns Twitter and they're going to know who to blame uh, about anything that goes wrong. Currently, you have an unaccountable board of directors um, of faceless Silicon Valley people and uh, I believe the Saudis um, and all these hedge funds that are, uh, you know, the the men behind the yellow curtain. Um, There's not, uh, this this is a situation where you are just replacing, you know, one set of evils with sort of one evil and the question is, which evil is more evil? And nobody knows. I mean, the thing is, effectively, single ownership, like, for example, Jeff Bezos of The Washington Post, uh, can be, it can be very benevolent if the owner is, bene- is very benevolent. It can be very evil if the owner is very evil. And there's no telling until, uh, un- until we, you know, at the takeover and we see what he does. And I also think, you know, there's, there's, you know, there's an article in the Washington Post about it. You know, I look at the Washington Post and, you know, let's face it, it's owned by Bezos. It's owned by, you know, who was the former richest person in the world. And when you look at the New York Times, the, I don't know, even know who owns it. The last time I checked, it was, it was the majority owner was the Carlos Slim, the, um, the billionaire, super billionaire from Mexico. So, you know, the the criticism of uh, the um, uh, of, of uh, I'm not saying for or against. I'm just saying the criticism that I see when I see it in The Times, when I see it in The Post, when I see it in some of these other places that are already owned by billionaires. I'm like, well, whether your criticism is valid or not, you guys, I mean, you need to look in the mirror here. Um, if, in fact, the, you got an issue with a billionaire, which I, of course, do have an uh, issue with a billionaire owning all of the media, but to pretend as though their particular media outlet is, you know, is, is, is open and honest. And just now that he says, you know, that they're afraid he might let Trump back on Twitter or something, you know, they've got their, uh, their underwear in a bunch, shall we say, <laughs> Ted Rell. 
I agree with that. Corporate ownership is exactly, it's no different than single billionaire ownership. It's just different spots on the same animal. And let's not forget, historically, there is nothing new about billionaires wanting to influence the, the uh, American political scene or even the international scene by purchasing uh, a media company. I mean, William Randolph Hearst did it. Um, he ran for governor and for president uh, on the basis of that. Um, the uh, uh, the, the uh, Horace Greeley, the, uh, he was the publisher of a newspaper in New York called the... Uh, uh, he ran for, he was the uh, Democratic uh, nominee for president in 1872, based purely on his status as a media mogul. Um, there are many examples, and you could argue that William, well, not argue, it's the fact that William Randolph Hearst started the Spanish-American War almost single-handedly, uh, ginning up a, a lie about the, remember the Maine, which just had a boil, it, it blew up, but Spain didn't blow it up. There was just a boiler room accident. So there's all sorts of um, examples in American history that predate this. Um, it, the current owner of the L.A. Times and the San Diego Union-Tribune is a big pharma, biotech billionaire. Uh, there's uh, billionaires have owned uh, the New York Daily News. They've owned the New York, uh, the New York Observer, which is sort of like the journalist uh, newspaper. And there's just, it, there's nothing new, and of course Bezos at the Washington Post, um, and so and there's been attempts by uh, other billionaires to buy newspapers. So and I think as long as uh, rich people want to have influence, uh, some of them are going to buy papers and uh, other media outlets. To that point, uh, Ted Rawl, is this much ado with no real tangible solution at hand? In that. Is the is the is the horse now with the power of social media? Uh, is the horse out of the proverbial barn? Well, you know, it's kind of like the debate about about taking money out of politics in campaigning. Uh, you can take money out of politics if you get rid of capitalism. Uh, you can take money out of media if you get rid of capitalism. As long as you have capitalism, you're going to have money, and you're going to have people who, uh, as Marx and Engels said. They're going to accrue money. They're going to aggregate wealth and power, and they're going to they're going to leverage it to get more wealth and power. So, uh, you know, there's no regulatory solution. Let's put it this way: there's no regulatory solution that, if passed, would not soon be whittled down to uh, to, to non-existence because the rich and powerful would use inevitably their their power and wealth to buy their to buy pet congressmen and senators to get the law changed more to their liking. Yeah, it's it's uh there's no regulatory solution when in, in within the context of an ideology that um, has deregulation as one of its pillars. You know, one of the things um, I, that I think uh, uh, I, it, that sticks in the minds of a lot of people is when uh, there was a tweet that said, "You know, wasn't in the best what wasn't in the best interest of people, the, of people. The U.S. government order, organizing a coup against Evo Morales in Bolivia so you could obtain the lithium lithium there." And Elon Musk's r response was telling in that he didn't 
deny it. He did. He simply said this. We will coo whoever we want. Deal with it. When I hear him say we, that means that he sees himself as part of that ruling elite that is entangled with the government that goes around the world and does whatever they want. Deal with it. It reminds me of that old saying. What is it? It's something like the strong will do what they want and the weak will suffer what they must. Ted. One more added point there. Interesting that he tweeted that about Bolivia and lithium as the owner of an electronic of an electric car company. Not a coincidence. Not a coincidence at all. Uh, one of the things I appreciate about Elon Musk is that he's forthright. I, I like his honesty. I like that he uh, you know he wears his, his uh, greed on his sleeve. We know what he's all about. We know uh, you know he doesn't try to pretend to be uh, you know, a pillar of the community or a nice guy. Uh, you know, he, he is exactly what he looks like he is. One of the things I appreciated about Donald Trump doesn't mean I like him, but, uh, you know, I, I think these people, these oligarchs do us a favor when they speak plainly. And I think uh, his, you know, his, what he said about, uh, about Bolivia is 100% true. People like him and, and the elites, they will coo whoever they want until someone stops them. What is the danger of of having someone with that mindset now over a social media outlet such as Twitter? Or does that does that just give us greater insight into what we've just been talking about and what Caitlin is basically saying and that is uh you know if you are expecting if you are expecting a billionaire to come to the rescue, it only happens in the movies and the comic books. You're as likely to be saved by Elon Musk as you are by Bruce Wayne or Tony Stark. Billionaires coming to the rescue only happens in movies and comic books. You're as likely to be saved by Elon Musk as you are by Bruce Wayne or Tony Stark. Yeah, you know, uh, I respect a lot of his work, and uh, I've met him and like him personally, but Ralph Nader had a book about basically arguing that uh, how the rich will save us and all we kind of the left needs is like one really, you know, good billionaire. Well, the problem is that you know billionaires aren't good. Uh, they wouldn't be. They wouldn't have be good people. Don't become billionaires, and uh, and and uh, billionaires don't allow good people to stay good. So I think um, you know that that just wasn't going to ever happen. The good, but the good news here is, look, Twitter was already ruined. Um, you know, Garland's currently. On uh, locked out of his account for 12 hours, and that Elon Musk has not purchased the company yet. And lots of other good progressives who didn't say or do anything wrong have had the same exact experience. And for that matter, uh, you know, the New York Post, right wing paper, got blocked out. Uh, we had their accounts shut down temporarily, and then there's and the Hunter Biden laptop story censored by Twitter again, not under Elon Musk. So censorship is already rife. Uh, there's nothing new here. Um, I think there's nothing, there's no reason to be afraid. I mean, you know, the, the, the barn door is open. The horses are long gone. Uh, Elon Musk is just the latest, uh, the latest uh, owner of the barn. He's the latest wrangler on the, uh, on the frontier. <laughs> Ted Rawl, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate it. We look forward to having you back. Thanks for having me. 
Folks, uh, you've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened, and we look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out. 